Good morning. I will be reading a statement on behalf of Morgan Stanley. Today's presentation will refer to Morgan Stanley's earnings release and financial supplement, copies of which are available at morganstanley.com. Today's presentation may include forward-looking statements that are subject to risks and uncertainties that may cause actual results to differ materially. Please refer to our notices regarding forward-looking statements and non-GAAP measures that appear in the earnings release. This presentation may not be duplicated or reproduced without our consent. I will now turn the call over to Chairman and Chief Executive Officer, James Gorman. Uh, good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us. For a decade now, we've been rebuilding Morgan Stanley from the depths of the crisis to a firm position to withstand whatever comes our way. Our performance this year has validated that approach, and third quarter revenues were $11.7 billion, the second highest quarterly result in our history. The balanced business mix continues to deliver consistent results and high returns. We report an ROTCE of 15%, with a year-to-date ROTCE of 14.3%. On October 2nd, we closed the acquisition of E-Trade, and last week we announced our intent to acquire Eaton Vance, which serves as the large, latest strategic step in our transformation. We added these acquisitions from position of strength, and we have strong momentum across each of our businesses. Institutional securities has been pivotal to our performance. In 2018, 19, and again in 20, year-to-date extremely strong. This quarter, ISG reported over $6 billion of revenues and $2 billion of pre-tax. Strength in Asia, equity underwriting, and fixed income sales and trading in our overall equities business powered our performance. Asia had its best quarter in nearly a decade, as we continue to see the benefits of the investments we have made in that region. Fixed income delivered the highest third quarter revenues in 10 years, excluding DVA. ICG revenues to date are 19 billion, up 24% over last year. And we continue to believe our institutional securities business has meaningful organic growth opportunities. Wealth management continues to grow, both organically and inorganically. On a year-to-date basis, fee-based flows have been an exceptional $53 billion, with $24 billion in this quarter alone. Lending balance growth was a quarterly record of $6 billion, versus the prior year, lending balances have increased nearly 20%. While we did not own E-Trade in the third quarter, it is important to note how they performed delivering strong client activity and asset growth in the quarter as they have all year. With E-Trade, our client, total client assets are now $3.5 trillion. That is up from $600 billion approximately we oversaw before we bought Smith Barney a decade ago, representing an increase of nearly six times. Our investment management business serves as the third leg of the stool and produced over a billion of revenues on its own this quarter. Assets under management reached a record $715 billion. Important to note that that is compared to $460 billion of assets under management we had less than two years ago. Asset under management growth has been powered by long-term net flows with over $10 billion in the third quarter, fueling, of course, fee revenue growth. While generating the strong organic growth our recent announcement allowed us to transform our investment management business, giving it scale and several incremental growth engines at one time. Frankly, 
it was too good of an opportunity to pass up. For years, we've viewed Eaton Vance as the perfect partner. We will bring together two high-performing asset managers with great business momentum. And through this partnership, we will now manage $1.2 trillion in assets under management and generate a combined $5 billion in annual revenues. And to cement October 2020 as one of the most important months in our history, we received an upgrade to A2 from Moody's, the only GCIP to receive an upgrade during the pandemic. Their recognition of the firm's clear and consistent strategy to shift our business mix towards lower risk, recurring profitable revenue streams in wealth and asset management, together with our integrated investment bank, is a further codification of our transformation. So what do the next six to 12 months hold? One, we will make material progress on the integration of E-Trade. Two, we will close and commence the integration of e Vance. Three, we will reinstitute our capital distribution plan in 1Q 2021, assuming, of course, we have clarity from the Federal Reserve. It is worth noting that our CT1 ratio, following the additions of E-Trade and Eaton Vance, is expected to be 300 basis points above our SCB requirement of 13.2%. Four, we will focus on driving organic business growth while managing expenses. And five, we will ensure our culture remains firmly client-centric and grounded in doing the right thing. This includes operational resiliency, meeting all regulatory expectations, and maintaining the risk profile we enjoy today. I will now turn the call over to John to discuss the results of the quarter, and together we will take your questions. Thank you. Thank you and good morning. In the third quarter, firm net revenues were $11.7 billion with net income applicable to Morgan Stanley of $2.7 billion. We were reported an ROTCE of 15%. Our year-to-date revenues reached a post-crisis record. Institutional Securities is having an exceptional year, capturing the elevated client activity and managing risk well. Wealth management is delivering stability while the underlying indicators to continue to position us for future growth. And investment management is delivering growth through industry-leading long-term net flows. Our bankers and financial advisors are supporting our clients as they remain intensely engaged. Expense management remains a priority. On a year-to-date basis, our firm efficiency ratio was 71%, down approximately 90 basis points from the prior year. We remain focused on our more controllable sources of spend while continuing to support our growth initiatives, employees, and communities. Non-compensation expenses increased on higher volume-related expenses and higher unfunded credit provisions, which were partially offset by a meaningful decrease in marketing and business development expenses. Compensation expenses increased on higher revenues. Now turning to the businesses. Institutional securities had the strongest third quarter in a decade. Equity underwriting, corporate credit, and strength in Asia underpinned the results. Clients remained engaged through the third quarter as risk assets continued to rally through August and capital markets remained active. From a regional perspective, Asia had its stronger quarter in nearly a decade with contributions from each of the businesses. Heightened activity and interest in China, which saw particular strength in IPOs and equities, drove results. Year-to-date 2020, Asia revenues are higher than all of 2019. 
Investment banking generated revenues of $1.7 billion, decreasing 17% from the prior quarter. While fixed income underwriting subsided and advisory revenues remain muted, equity underwriting buoyed results with particular strength in IPOs. Advisory revenues were $357 million, reflective of lower completed M&A industry volumes. Equity underwriting continues to be extremely active, with revenues of $874 million. Results were driven by IPOs, which nearly doubled versus the prior quarter, offsetting declines in convertibles and blocks. Fixed income underwriting revenues were $476 million. Results were impacted by the lower levels of event-related activity in the quarter. The equity underwriting pipeline remains healthy. We expect issuers to continue to access the market and remain opportunistic. The advisory pipeline is recovering, as evidenced by the recent increase in announced activity, and we have seen the pickup in both sponsor and corporate activity. Equity sales and trading revenues were $2.3 billion. We are number one in this business, both for the quarter and year to date. Results were particularly strong in Asia, as well as the Americas, consistent with client interest in higher growth regions and momentum names, respectively. While volumes declined from historic levels of the second quarter, activity remained robust. Both cash and derivatives revenues were elevated for a third quarter. Prime brokerage results were strong. Average balances increased as market levels rose, rose and certain clients relevered with spot balances closing above 2Q period end levels. Fixed income sales and trading had the strongest third quarter in a decade, excluding the impact of DVA, driven by the strength in micro. Revenues were $1.9 billion in aggregate, with most products declining from an exceptionally strong second quarter. Activity levels were healthy as clients remained engaged throughout the summer months. From a geographical perspective, results were broad-based, and year-to-date, fixed income has now generated over $7 billion of revenues. Micro continued its robust performance. Bid-ask spreads remained elevated, though lower than the prior quarter, benefiting results. Performance was supported by continued strength in securitized products and credit corporates. Macro was impacted by lower sequential revenues in rates and foreign exchange as spreads normalized and volatility declined. Foreign exchange and rate markets continue to be range-bound. Commodities results reflected lower activity, but were supported by strength in metals, highlighting the diversification of the business in recent years. Our ISG loan portfolio continued to perform well. As a reminder, over 90% of our ISG loans and commitments are either investment grade or secured. The sequential decline in results across other sales and trading and other revenues primarily reflected lower gains, net of hedges, on our held-for-sale portfolio due to less spread tightening compared to the prior quarter. Our funded ISG loans declined by $2.3 billion from the prior quarter, driven primarily by paydowns in our corporate loan book. Our funded ratio of corporate loans now stands at 15%, down from 18% in the prior quarter and well below the 1Q peak at over 25%. We added to our reserves modestly in this quarter. Our provision for loan losses was $66 million, down 70% from the second quarter. We had approximately $23 million of net charge-offs, primarily from one commercial real estate loan that was troubled pre-COVID. Our allowance for credit losses on loans and lending commitments increased to $1.1 billion, of which our allowance on loans now stands at $806 million. The increase were primarily driven by COVID-related sectors. 
COVID-related sectors continue to represent just 10% of our total ISG lending exposures. And the substantial majority of these exposures are either investment grade or secured by collateral. Our allowance for corporate loans increased to 4.8% and for CRE remained stable at 3.1%. Across the entire held for investment loan portfolio, our total allowance rose to 1.9%. Turning to wealth, third quarter revenues were $4.7 billion, broadly in line with the prior quarter and up approximately 5%, excluding the impact of DCP. Pre-tax profit was $1.1 billion. Our reported margin was 24%. Merger-related expenses and a regulatory charge impacted the margin by almost 200 basis points. The underlying indicators of this business remain robust, including record new net, new, excuse me, record net new assets, continued strength in client engagement, fee-based flows, loan originations, and net recruiting. Fee-based flows were exceptionally strong at $24 billion in the third quarter, contributing to a year-to-date fee-based flows of $53 billion. Total client assets ended the quarter at $2.9 trillion, 11% higher than the prior year. In the third quarter, transactional revenues were $880 million, including the impact of DCP revenues increased sequentially, exhibiting seasonal strength driven by capital markets activity. Asset management revenues increased 11% sequentially to $2.8 billion, reflecting higher starting asset levels on higher markets and fee-based flows. Importantly, asset management fees are $8 billion year-to-date, a 6% increase over 2019. Lending growth remains strong, with balances exceeding $91 billion. On a year-to-date basis, balances have grown by $11 billion, with record quarterly growth of $6 billion in the third quarter. Growth was broad-based across the portfolio. We saw strength in securities-based lending, which was driven by strong engagement from ultra-high net worth clients and by adding resources to our lending businesses. The loan portfolio continues to perform exceptionally well. We had only $2 million in net charge-offs in the last seven quarters in this portfolio. Forbearance continued to, to decline. Mortgage forbearance fell by more than half, representing less than 1% of our portfolio, and 90-plus day delinquencies declined to 20 basis points. Forbearance on commercial real estate loans in our tailored lending book declined by approximately 40%. Net interest income was $889 million, declining 14% sequentially. Higher lending and BDP balances helped to partially offset the impact of prepayment amortization and tighter deposit spreads. Prepay was more meaningful in the quarter, accelerating in the latter part of September as rates decline. Nearly half of the sequential decline in NII was attributed to prepayment amortization. Total U.S. bank deposits were $238 billion, and third quarter BDP balances were up $7 billion despite delayed tax payments. Total expenses were $3.5 billion in line with the prior quarter. Investment management results were very strong as the business continues to demonstrate meaningful momentum. Long-term net flows and strong investment performance has supported AUM growth, which is translating into higher fee revenue. Revenues of $1.1 billion represented the second highest quarterly level in over a decade, increasing 19% from a robust prior quarter. Total AUM rose to a record high $715 billion, representing over $200 billion of growth since last year. 
Long-term net flows were $10 billion, driven by continued strong investment performance in global equity strategies. Being global remains critical. Our investment team in Asia began sub-advising a newly established ESG Global Equity Fund in the third quarter. It was one of the most notable fundraises in Japan in the last 20 years and at quarter end at more than $5 billion in assets under management. Inflows across all regions led to an annualized long-term growth rate over 10% for the second consecutive quarter. Total net flows were $13 billion as liquidity inflows moderated and investors pivoted away from money funds. Asset management fees of $795 million increased 16% sequentially, driven by higher management fees consistent with strong growth in AUM. In the third quarter, we did see an increase in fee waivers on certain money market funds as a result of the rate environment, and we expect to see the full effect of this trend in the fourth quarter. Investment revenues were $258 million in the quarter. We saw broad-based gains across the portfolio with sequential increase primarily driven by gains in Asia private equity funds. Total expenses were $741 million. The increase was driven by higher compensation on higher revenues as well as higher BC&E expenses on higher average AUM. We are very excited about the future of this business and to be partnering with Eaton Vance. We expect to close the transaction in the second quarter of 2021. We look forward to advancing our partnership with Eaton Vance and further enhancing our investment management platform. Turning to the balance sheet, total spot assets declined to $956 billion as funding levels declined from highs of the second quarter. Our standardized RWAs declined by $5 billion to $411 billion. And our standardized CET1 ratio rose 80 basis points to 17.3 compared to our SCB of 13.2. Our board declared a 35 cent dividend per share. Excluding $113 million of intermittent net discrete tax benefit, our tax rate was 24.3%. We continue to expect our full year 2020 core tax rate will be approximately 22 to 23%. On October 2nd, we closed the acquisition of E-Trade. As a function of the closing, we issued 232 million shares and $11 billion of common equity. Our assets increased by approximately $77 billion and RWAs by $12 billion. We created approximately $8 billion of goodwill and intangibles, of which $3 billion will be amortized over approximately 15 years and our CET1 ratio increased by approximately 40 basis points. Tangible book value per share declined by approximately $4, and our book value per share was essentially flat. As you would expect, in the fourth quarter, we will start to see merger-related expenses as we begin the integration of E-Trade. We will start to break these charges out in our disclosures in January when we report year-end results. As for the operating outlook, the dispersion of potential macro outcomes remains high, and while we are cognizant of the seasonal patterns of the fourth quarter, we are encouraged by client engagement across all three businesses in the first few weeks of the quarter. With that, we will now open the line to questions. Thank you. To ask a question, you will press star one on your telephone. To withdraw your question, press the pound key. In the interest of time, we ask that you please limit yourself to one question and one follow-up. Our first question comes from Glenn Shore with Evercore. Your line is now open. Hi, thanks very much. Uh, 
curious if we could talk about uh, flows in wealth management. Uh, you mentioned a couple of things, but I'm curious what you would attribute year to date to recruiting versus consolidation of of, of wallet share. And and uh, while we're on it, if you could talk about uh, the wealth management loans being up almost 20%, is that um, a combination of mortgage and SBLs? Just just curious, what's driving that within wealth management? Uh, sure. Um, in terms of the um, the flows, listen, this is a long-term secular trend that we continue to see that people want uh, to, 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 to pay uh, for a managed account and one fee, and uh, we've seen this for the last several years, and we now approach about 50% of the assets we manage are in fee-based accounts. Uh, it's really a combination of multiple factors, and I think you mentioned uh, many of them. One, We've seen more cash come into uh, the network, and that cash is being deployed, uh, although there's still a significant amount of cash on the sidelines within our network. But we have seen more come in, and more of that's being put into the market. Uh, number two, your comment about net recruiting. We're seeing uh, uh, Morgan Stanley become the destination of choice for financial advisors. Recruiting has been quite strong, and we brought in bigger uh, teams over the last uh, course of the last nine months, and with them, they are bringing their assets, which are being deployed uh, into the fee-based uh, account. So really a combination of those two things. And then lastly, we've seen attrition uh, drop significantly. So we're not losing um, uh, many assets. Uh, so a combination of all those three things. And again, we think that's a long-term secular trend that will continue and will continue to see good flows into our fee-based accounts. And then I think the, the, the lending growth is really, as you mentioned, those two products, the SBL product, uh, we saw significant uh, pick up about $4 billion this quarter. Uh, predominantly about 70, 75% of that came from our ultra high net worth um, uh, client base. Uh, we've continued to invest in the platform. I think we've gotten better at using data and analytics. We've added some more support to the field, uh, and we've seen real receptivity uh, around uh, that product with our client base. And then lastly, mortgage continues to do quite well. Interestingly, we had about 45% uh, purchase uh, this quarter, which um, uh, which was nice to see as as that has picked up as well. So it's really uh, both those products have been quite uh, quite strong within the within the footprint. I would just add, uh, Glenn. You know, sort of observing it now from a, a little distance because I'm not directly involved in it. Uh, this is the healthiest I have seen this business in the 14 years I've been here, in terms of uh, client flows, both uh, uh, fee-based flows and absolute flows, which we historically don't break out. Uh, there are a lot of, you know, movements during the year with tax payments and the like, but it's extremely healthy. And the attrition numbers very low, as John said. So net recruiting, uh, better client penetration, and a lot of very wealthy clients, um, uh, you know, validating the model. And you add that to the E-Trade franchise, which has also seen very strong flows this year. It's uh, For me, it's very exciting to see it. I appreciate that. Maybe just one follow-up on the expense side. Uh, first, maybe with the core expense, you mentioned act activity levels are up, so obviously expenses are elevated, but marketing and T&A has been down. Maybe if you could start with how to think about that for the go-forward on expenses, and then I know that we have to wait till January to, for your integration thoughts on, on E-Trade dollar-wise, but maybe you could talk a little bit about what you actually have to spend money on on, on the integration and the trade 
uh, so we can just start putting together our thoughts on models. Thanks. Uh, sure. Um, just broadly on the on the expense base, uh, what we've obviously seen, given the elevated volumes, is elevated um, uh, brokerage and clearing expense uh, that goes with the trading volumes as well as transaction taxes. We, as I mentioned, Asia has been very strong, so we've got a little bit more of a skew towards transaction taxes, and those will uh, continue to remain elevated, assuming that the volumes remain elevated, and those generally ebb and flow, uh, or they do ebb and flow with the volumes. We've done a really nice job of also managing our professional expenses. Uh, we continue to try to drive those numbers down. And then the market and business development expenses has really been driven by um, just the lack, of, the lack of travel, the lack of conferences, things being converted um, uh, to, uh, to virtual. And we would expect uh, that to remain muted for a while, but ultimately uh, those expenses will, will, will start to tick up as uh, we start to see movement around the globe. Uh, in terms of uh, E-Trade, as you know, um, in February when we announced the transaction, we talked about $800 million of uh, integration-related charges that we would um, uh, incur over a three-year period. As I just mentioned, that, that will start in the first, the, the, this current quarter and the fourth quarter. We'll start to break out those disclosures so you can see exactly uh, what they are. Um, uh, we closed the deal about 10, 10 days ago. We're extremely confident. Uh, about both the funding and cost synergies that we laid out, and we also think there are significant revenue opportunities as we, as we uh, get into the integration here. So you'll start to see that this quarter. Uh, we'll break it out, and as you said, we'll give you some more thoughts around that in January. Thank you. Oh. Our next question comes from Stephen Chubach with Wolf Research. Your line is now open. Hi, good morning. Morning. So, James, I wanted to start off with a question on capital. You know, the accretion has been considerable, as you noted, since the pandemic started, and you're clearly significantly overcapitalized. You also noted that you plan on returning the excess uh, possibly as early as 1Q next year, subject to regulatory approval and removal of the buyback moratorium. Now, how should we be thinking about the pace and cadence of buyback and your comfort initiating payouts in excess of 100% of earnings? And just separately, how does the dividend target uh, evolve alongside that? A uh, few questions tucked in there, Steve. Uh, very artful. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, listen, we, we're, we're overcapitalized. I mean, that's the bottom line. Uh, we were overcapitalized before we went through CCAR last time, and our SCB numbers actually were lowered by the Fed, reflecting the change in the business model. Um, you know, it's something that we thought we, we felt for a long time, and it's starting to be recognised. And even if you look at the PPNR models, where we continue to argue, uh, I think entirely appropriately that financial advisor compensation is a variable, not fixed expense. So, would come down as revenues come down, our PPNR numbers would actually be healthier than they're currently showing. Eventually, I think that argument will prevail. I hope it will prevail. But even without that. Uh, with the accretion from the uh, E-Trade transaction, you know, we're making $2.5 billion a quarter net, and we're paying out total dividend, I think, about $2.2 billion. Look at John, maybe slightly higher. Um, you know, so we're, we're clearly accreting a lot of excess capital, about probably $7 billion net without doing buyback, on a base where we're 300 basis points above uh, the minimum requirement will always keep a buffer. I don't know what that buffer should be, 100 basis points probably, something like that. 
I'm looking at our CFO here to see if he disagrees with me. He's sort of shaking his hand sideways. Like he's probably a little plus on the 100. I'm probably a little minus on the... Oh, he's a little minus. Okay, we're all happy. Um, let's see. You know, on buybacks, I, there is no, absolutely no reason, um, given Morgan Stanley's current condition, uh, the uh, uh, shape of our, our balance sheet, um, our liquidity profile and the mix of the businesses, why we wouldn't be distributing capital, except that for right now, it's the right thing to do for the broader uh, community as we work through this pandemic uh, exercise and the Fed does its uh, pandemic stress test, which is going on right now. I'm highly confident we will come out of that showing we have uh, significant excess capital. I'm hopeful we'll um, ha have those results you know, before uh, we get into next year, but obviously that's, you know, not within uh, my purview. Uh, given that, I would expect us to be back doing buybacks in, in the first quarter. Um, obviously, if the economy completely tanks between now and then, or if the results are uh, less positive than I expect them to be, then, then, you know, all bets are off. But that's, you know, you've got to run the business as you see it likely to be, and that's my likely scenario. How much do we do? Yeah, you could do, a, a, by definition, you could do above 100% payout. Why not? If you, Otherwise, we ne we'll never eat into the 300 basis points. At some point, we have to do something with this capital. Our shareholders, rightfully, who own the company, are, are, are entitled to generate a decent return on the capital invested in the company. We have to do something with it. Buying Eaton Vance was a tremendous opportunity to use some of that. It's going to... Do, uh, uh, hit our uh, CT1, I think, about 90, 100 basis points. Uh, but we've accreted 90 to 100 basis points in the meantime. So we're sort of back to where we started, but we own a new company. That's a nice thing. Uh, so you can tell I'm, I'm a little animated on the subject. If you look at any of the global uh, GCFEs in the US, I think it's fair to say we are carrying the most capital surplus. And I don't think there's any rational reason why once we get through the COVID, you know, stress test, if you will, uh, that that would that will perpetuate unless we get a result which is adverse, which I don't expect. No, thanks for all that perspective, James. And maybe just a, a question for John on the NII outlook. Um, you beat on virtually every line item. I think NII was the lone exception. You were not alone this quarter as prepay started to accelerate, uh, even towards the end of the quarter. But just curious, given the strength in loan growth uh, that was cited in Glenn's earlier question, I want to get a sense as to how we should be thinking about the NII trajectory from here, whether we should expect things to start to stabilize and maybe even grow uh, you know, as we look out to 2021. Yeah. Well, I think um, uh, you're right. Uh, we did get hit with prepayments at the end of the quarter. I think uh, absent that prepayment level, we, we generally came in where we thought and where we had guided you to, probably a little light uh, as we saw some uh, contraction in deposit spreads. I think on a go-forward basis, if we were just ourselves, I would say we're pretty stable uh, at this point. We obviously have reinvest reinvestment risk as the uh, investment portfolio turns over, but we're generally offsetting, offsetting that with the growth we're seeing in the portfolio. Uh, but as you know, we did close E-Trade. Uh, E-Trade comes with a, a large low-cost deposit base and a very highly uh, liquid, high-quality uh, investment portfolio. So from a quantum perspective, uh, next quarter you'll, or this quarter, uh, you'll see uh, the dollars of NII go up uh, as, uh, as about half of the, the revenues generated at E-Trade were from uh, NII. And then we're going to start uh, optimizing uh, their portfolio as we laid out in February. 
uh, where, uh, we'll give you a better sense of sort of what the sensitivities are around that, but we're highly confident we can get the funding synergies uh, that we outlined uh, in February, uh, and that contribution of NII uh, probably ticks up, but still is going to be sort of, again, relative to others, about only 25% of the wealth business, which, again, is a much smaller part of the overall company. Steve, just back to your capital question. I mean, it's important to note that, uh, you know, let's assume just mathematically, I don't know, we're carrying 20% excess capital right now. Um, you know, 300 plus basis points on 13.2 uh, requirement. Um, if that's the case, and we're still generating ROEs of, you know, 13%, ROTC of uh, 15%. So, you know, with with that excess capital, we're generating these kinds of returns. So I think shareholders would, would uh, you know, could sensibly look through that and project what the returns would be on the capital we're actually using to run the business. And obviously, they're higher than where we are now. Great. Thanks for that perspective, James. Thanks for taking my questions. Sure. Thank you. Our next question comes from Brennan Hawken with UBS. Your line is now open. Uh, good morning. Thanks for taking the questions. I um, wanted to start with um, one on expenses. So uh, at the beginning of the year, James, you provided some targets, two-year targets, um, that focused on you know efficiency ratio and pre-tax margin and wealth. But I, I seem to recall that they were based on, this was before all the deals, so I think they were based on you know what, what I'll you know, refer to as legacy MS, not not pejoratively, um, but just you know for clarity. So you know, not trying to be nitpicky here. I, I just want to try and understand: is, is there a way we're going to be able to track your progress in um, your uh, legacy business uh, towards those targets, or is the idea that now that you've got so many of these like strategic integrations that are continuing your transformation, that that's sort of trumping, you know, the work that you had previously laid out on efficiency, and therefore, you know, it's it's just more important to focus on the integration there and, and not uh, the, uh, the efficiency push. Just want to try to understand how to think about that. Sure, Brendan. I think there are sort of three three elements to looking at this. One is what is the, as you described with the legacy business, uh, going to generate in terms of efficiency ratio. And right now, I think this year we're slightly over 70%. Uh, we were less than that in Q2. We're higher in Q1, and we're right, I think, right on the button this quarter. Um, our two-year objective was 70 to 72, so meeting that. Our long-term aspiration was under 70, and we're very close to meeting that. So sort of check the box on legacy. Number two is what do um, uh, the new acquisitions do to our efficiency ratio? If you look at the pre-tax margin on um, the E-Trade business, it's, um, uh, let's see, it was, you know, it's sort of in the 40-ish percent range, maybe a little below that with what's going on with um, uh, net interest income. And if you look at the uh, Eaton Vance business, it's closer to 30%. So by definition, if you simply added one plus one, um, your efficiency ratio would actually be lower. Uh, but the third bucket, of course, is what are the integration costs? Well, they don't start on Eaton Vance until we close that, which John said should be Q2 of next year. Um, we have actually, we had a small number of integration costs already in, in uh, E-Traders, you know, in, in, um, in the last, uh, you know, little bit. And that will build, and I think we put out a projection of $800 million over three years. I personally would like to um, 
accelerate that. Uh, we will probably identify it as a below the line number. So, you know, just for cleanliness and for your models, we'll show uh, you'll be able to see a efficiency ratio with and without it. But, you know, clearly we'll talk to our accountants about the right, right way to report that. Uh, but, you know, we're not going to hide the ball here. We're, we're highly confident that uh, absent integration costs, our efficiency uh, numbers, there's no reason why they don't stand. Okay, great. Thanks for that. And then I know that, uh, uh, John, I think you mentioned that your plan is to lay out some more specifics around E-Trade uh, with the uh, the fourth quarter call, which makes a lot of sense. But, you know, what's your early read on uh, how you're thinking about some of these uh, uh, changes that, that are likely to happen on the back of this integration? Um, is the plan that the E-Trade Bank sub will be folded into the uh, one of the Morgan Stanley uh, bank subs? Uh, are you planning to integrate the BDs? Um, and, you know, the really one of the great assets that E-Trade brings, the stock plan business, um, has, you know, sort of a different focus, more of a public plan focus. Uh, and so the strengths are, are very uh, different, but offer a nice, you know, kind of yin and yang with the Solium, uh, which has a strong private uh, offering. So how do you plan to bring those uh, platforms together, or is the idea that in order to fully capture the, the broad strength, keeping them separate is a better approach? And so it it um, maybe the the full integration is. Is, is not going to be realized in order to maintain those various strengths. Uh, sure. Um, and, I mean, broadly the answer, Brennan, to that question is, uh, is yes. But I think the way we're thinking about it, first we've got to integrate the systems. Um, we want to capture the costs and the funding synergies that we laid out. We want to do it in a way that doesn't dis disrupt the customer experience uh, and ultimately enhances the customer experience. Uh, and then, as you said, I think we believe there are significant opportunities ac across all three channels um, to, 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 to generate growth and revenue growth. And whether that's in the stock plan business uh, and trying to get our cash capture uh, numbers up to the E-Trade numbers, when we did the deal, they were running about 15%. Uh, they're, they're now running north of 20. Our numbers were dramatically lower than that. So if we can bring the combined business together uh, and get that to a higher level closer to theirs, that's a significant synergy. Uh, clearly, <clears throat> they're uh, generating lots of new clients. Some of those clients are ultimately going to want uh, want advice. Um, and so, you know, there are lots of opportunities across all three channels, uh, and we'll start to see those as we get these systems integrated. Uh, as we mentioned before, that we'll keep the E-Trade brand for the self-directed um, uh, business line, but we're going to bring these companies together slowly. This was not a deal about costs. It was about revenue opportunities ultimately just like the Eaton Vance deal was, uh, and we're going to take our time, integrate them well, and bring the cultures and companies together. But, and to be clear, nothing has changed in our view of E-Trade. If anything, it's got better. Um, the integration plans we've been working on for six months with uh, Mike Peasy, CEO of E-Trade, who's joined our operating committee, um, you know, very well thought through plans, uh, great detail, uh, you know, we'll stage the various businesses, as you highlighted, the workplace, the um, uh, you know, the banks, et cetera, and then the actual E-Trade uh, uh, trading business will re retain a separate identity uh, because it, ha it has a very powerful brand in the marketplace. So, so we're, you know, we're highly confident we're going to get the cost synergies. It's just 
and and I think we gave you that 800 million number in in January or February, I guess, when we did the deal. And I, you know, it'd be fair to say that's probably not. Um, uh, you know, we're, we're we tend to be conservative with numbers like that, so I doubt we're going to be spending more than that. And the pace of the spend will be just run with the integration plan. So it's going exactly as we hoped it would go, but even a little better, frankly. Thank you. Our next question comes from Mike Carrier with Bank of America. Your line is now open. Good morning, and thanks for taking the questions. Um, first, just institutional had very strong year, and a few years for that matter. And James, you mentioned up front, you still see some good organic you know, growth opportunities. Just given your leading share in some of the areas, can you provide maybe a little color on just where you see you know, some of the attractive organic growth in that business? And if that can maybe offset, you know, some of the expected moderation. Yeah, well, firstly, um, you know, doing deals in the institutional space is, uh, you know, a little fraught. You're, you're unlikely to want to do balance sheet type deals. I don't think anybody would uh, would be sending up balloons if we did that. And, you know, there are, there are obviously advisory businesses around the world that you could acquire, uh, small ones, boutiques, if you like. Uh, but we haven't we haven't found anything that that really uh, excites us yet. Um, so if we look at the organic growth, I mean, just look at fixed income, um, and still the gap between what our fixed income business is doing, which is phenomenal, by the way, from where they've come from, it's truly phenomenal. Uh, and credit, you know, Sam Kelly Smith and Ted Pick overseeing all uh, institutional business for that turnaround in the last couple of years, just phenomenal. Uh, but they they clearly um, clearly have capacity to grow in that business. Our equities business, you know, we, we lost the number one mantle for a quarter. We didn't like that. Uh, we got it back. Um, clearly, prime brokerage has continued to consolidate. There's growth across uh, uh, prime brokerage. Our, our capital markets business in Asia, particularly China-bound Asia, enormous. We have an incredible franchise there. I think there are parts of banking we could be stronger in. We have some segments where we're very dominant. Uh, healthcare, tech, and then some other industry groups we could get even stronger. Um, so I, you know, I think in DCM we've made progress. I think we're number five or, or uh, five or six in DCM underwriting, John, and uh, uh, well, four actually. He's pointing to me. Um, you know, I think the gap uh, there with some of our competitors. There's no particularly rational reason why there should be a gap there. Um, you know, I, I, I think there's just it's it's nowhere near. You know, we're nowhere near what we could be as a potential. The question is. Can we get there with the kinds of returns we want and expect from the business? So we're quite judicious. We're not just throwing balance sheet at it. Look at the trading bar. I think our trading bar this quarter was uh, 60 million a day, and, and that was materially lower than our major competitors. So we're quite judicious about it. But you know, a series of small steps rather than big swings is the way I'd describe uh, the institutional business, and they've delivered. You know, as I, I made a point of saying, in 18 they had a record, 19. And again, in 20, they're delivering. So I, I think there's a lot of upside. And obviously, it's also framed by the competitive landscape and what the European banks are doing or not doing, uh, et cetera. John, I'd, I don't know if you want to add to that. Yeah, no, I think you've, you've summed that up well. And I think Asia uh, is really a, a bright spot for us. As I said, year to date, uh, the revenue generation from that business and ISG now bigger than Europe. Uh, we see that as a real growth engine, uh, and we'll continue to make investments there. All right, thanks a lot. And then just given the, the recent um, M&A, whether it's e-trading wallet or e-band, you know, investment management, 
I think both make sense. Just curious on timing. You know, is it you know, obviously you have the excess capital, um, or are you seeing something from like an industry dynamic? And then more importantly, both of those businesses are putting up good growth. So just what do you think you know that business does? Um, you know, with these these transactions, obviously not over the next you know, six to twelve months, but maybe you know two to four years. Yeah, you're a little gobbled there with the phone line, but I think the question is around the timing of those transactions. Here's how I think about acquisitions. Um, there are at least four things that matter. One is strategy, two is culture, three is price, and four is timing. Strategy is like the, 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 the high table, if you will, uh, the holy grail. You've got to have strategic intent. It's got to be a logical fit. It's got to be building on something which you already have competence in. It's not a swing for the fences. It's not new ground. It's something we know well, we're good at, and that's the perfect strategic uh, opportunity comes when you get that, and we got that with E-Trade and, uh, and then with Eaton Vance. Um, culture is very important, particularly in the finance industry where a lot of deals have gone bad because of cultural, uh, bad cultural fits, including, by the way, in the asset management space, and there's a fairly high skepticism probably from all of you about large asset management deals. We thought through that a lot. Eden Van's been around 94 years. We're the biggest distributor of their product. Uh, we know them extremely well. Parametric has been an absolute home run in our system. Uh, the Calvert Funds and what they've done in sustainability space, uh, the fixed income uh, uh, combined with our fixed income business, their core equity funds. There's so much to like about it and about their leadership team. And I would point out that they have they had an internal voting shareholder structure, and all 25 of their internal voting shareholders voted in favor of the deal, unanimous. Uh, so it wasn't just the board, it was the management. So culture, I feel really good about. Price is price. You know, you don't buy quality assets cheaply. Um, timing is the thing least in your control. And I'm sure if we didn't do this transaction with Eaton Vance, somebody else might have. Um, we didn't want to do it before we had the E-Trade thing completely done. On the other hand, uh, you know, we wanted to get moving. It's assets, quality assets don't sit on the shelf for very long. Uh, they were interested in Morgan Stanley, we're interested in them. So timing is just, timing is the thing you've got to give most on. It may not be the ultimate convenience. You know, it certainly came hot on the tail of E-Trade. We didn't want to communicate all of a sudden we're trying to do an acquisition a week. We're not. Um, we didn't control the timing, so we, we, you know, we, if we got if we got the first three right, then timing is the least important. Um, what it does in the COVID thing, I think, is your broader timing issue um, with what's going on with the economy. Listen, their business is growing; they've had great growth. As I said, the parametric product has done incredibly well um, since it was created a few years ago. Uh, they're seeing great great growth across the whole platform, as is our asset management business. So. We really think we're putting together two strong growing businesses and you know the, the, the investment market is not going to go away, uh, whatever happens in the election, whatever happens politically. So I'm, I'm not worried about that over the next couple of years. Great, thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from Mike Mayo with Wells Fargo Securities. Your line is now open. Uh, hi. Um, well, to coincide with your upgrade of your credit rating, congratulations. My question is on risk. In uh, three oh boy, parts. Boy, I thought you were about to upgrade. I thought you were about to upgrade us, Mike, when you said upgrade. You have disappointed me, man. <laughs> um, well, first, um, you have 3% quarter-over-quarter loan growth. 
is you know well above the industry. So just wondered about the risk related to that and how you're getting what others are not. Uh, second, on the E-Trade acquisition, uh, the spread revenues for E-Trade, you know, seem like they'd be a, a quite a bit lower. So you know, updates on revenue thoughts with that acquisition. And then third, with Eaton Vance, um, seven billion dollars for a firm that's earning about 360 million. You'd have to double the earnings just to get over a 10% ROE. So, in terms of risk, loan risk, um, E-Trade risk with the uh, spread revenues, and Eaton Vance risk with just really getting your your full money's worth. Uh, well, uh, I'll let. John talk about the uh, credit risk, but I would observe that we are not in the unsecured credit uh, world. We do not do small business lending on any scale at all. Uh, we tend to loan against people's uh, own portfolios, so we have collateral and we have total visibility on the consumer side. And on the institutional side, we're very careful about what sectors we've been in. We're not overexposed to some of the more troubled sectors. And we have a lot of really good clients who have been really loyal to us have great businesses that we want to support during this period. So, you know, the fact our credit uh, is performing uh, differently from some other institutions is completely irrelevant. I mean, it, it entirely depends on who you're lending to and on what terms and conditions. So um, on the uh, E-Trade business, yes, with the NII, obviously um, that business is, is uh, you know, is affected by that. On the other hand, um, the account openings, the positive asset flows, the opportunity for us to provide those kinds of mortgage and lending products to their clients, the opportunity for us to provide uh, the alts, put the alts platform on their system, uh, the fact that we're not spending $200 million a year building out our own digital platform. There are so many positives before you even get to the workplace business uh, where their conversion rate, as John said, uh, is something like 20 plus percent. Ours has been about 3%. So I, I'm, I just think that we is certainly, we, we are eyes wide open on what's going on in interest rates in this world. I don't expect that to be a permanent state, but it's certainly not something that makes me shy about the attractiveness of uh, this uh, acquisition. The underlying benefit and flows in the business have been phenomenal. And the one thing that has actually changed in people's behavior even more than what's gone on the last five years is the increased use of digitalization, whether it's their health services, financial services, uh, obviously, shopping, etc. So I think we could we couldn't have been more blessed than to have got E-Trade at the time we got it. On Eaton Vance, listen, Mike, I'm not that smart. One of your colleagues on the call said that even if we paid a billion dollars excess for it uh, at a 90 billion dollar company, it's like yeah, it's, it's I, I'm not ashamed to say it's fully priced, but this is a quality asset, and I look at the growth rate in the asset. I don't I don't look at the, the static position. Uh, we will get the expenses out of this. We will consolidate this. We will generate the revenues from it. It fills out our fixed income asset management business in a way that we couldn't have done otherwise. And it provides us some real growth engines, as I said, with their core uh, equities platform, with uh, Parametric, with Culvert Funds, uh, the Atlanta Fund. They've, they've got so many businesses that work for us. They, they have very little international distribution. We can take them internationally. We have trouble getting our product distributed domestically because we don't have a strong wholesaling sales force as others do. They do. They have a world-class one. So, you know, will, will that deal deliver? I'm positive that deal is going to deliver. And if we overpaid by a couple hundred million dollars, people said we overpaid solely by a couple hundred million dollars. 
Some people said we overpaid Smith Barney by a couple of billion dollars. So I take a very long-term view on acquisitions. Uh, just one more follow-up. Uh, pull back the lens even more. I mean, over the last 10 to 20 years, you're right now reversing some of the actions that you took. You sold off Van Campton, and now you go ahead and get an asset manager. You got out of the the kind of the mass market wealth management. Now you're back with E-Trade. Um, can you give us kind of your big picture strategic thoughts on why the, the long-term reversal here? I totally disagree with what you just said. We've not had a long-term reversal. We sold Van Campen, which I regard as a mistake. I said it a couple of years later. I wish we hadn't done it, uh, but we did it. And uh, I said on a call a couple of weeks ago, if Marty Flanagan was listening, you know, I regret that, but uh, God bless him. Uh, he's a friend of mine, and I wish him well. Um, we haven't got out of the, the, the mass market. And by the way, E-Trade is a combination of a workplace business, an active trader, options derivative business, and a direct business. We, we have always provided financial services since we merged with Dean Witter in 1997 to the average investor. We've, we happen to have a lot of very, very wealthy investors in addition, but we have millions of people with hundreds of thousands of dollars to invest, not tens of millions of dollars to invest. So this is not a change in strategy at all. This is about getting scale in the businesses we want to be in. The one thing we did differently, which I would have done differently, I've said repeatedly, is Van Campen. But you look at some of the other stuff we did. We got out of mortgage servicing, Saxon. We got out of shipping storage and oil storage and shipping, Transmontane um, and Heidemar. Uh, we, we got out of the Stadab PDT business, uh, Peter Muller's business, because it was a prop business. So we've... We shut down Front Point, our hedge fund. We got out of Discover, which was a credit card business, uh, to the mass market, unsecured credit. We have fundamentally, over, and that happened before my tenure, obviously, but fundamentally changed the profile of this company to focus on originating, distributing, and managing capital for individuals, governments, and institutions. That's what we do, and this is entirely consistent with that, and Eaton Vance sits squarely in, in, that, uh, in that square. Thank you. Our next question comes from Jim Mitchell with Seaport Global. Your line is now open. Thanks. Uh, good morning. Maybe just to follow up on E-Trade, if we look at their <clears throat> results in the first half, they, as you pointed out, James, they're very strong, adding 650,000 retail accounts up 14%, cash balances up 50%. Um, I guess two, two parts to the question. I guess first, um, on the flip side, you have lower rates. So how do you think about the accretion targets given the growth we've seen versus the interest rate uh, declines we've seen since you announced the deal. And then secondly, I mean, wh how do you, what's driving, I mean, obviously the markets have been volatile, but do you think that kind of account growth can continue and is that a big surprise going forward? Well, let, let me start and then uh, I'm sure John Ladd, listen, we're on day 10 or something here. And I know everybody wants to fill out your models. I'm sympathetic to that. Sharon has already told me that's what uh, everybody's looking for. Um, and I'd love to be able to do that for you, but we're not going to do that today. Um, they have had unbelievable growth. I think their record uh, new account uh, number before this year was 93,000, and they were over 300,000 in the first quarter, second quarter, a couple of hundred, this quarter well over it. They've had uh, incredible asset flows into the business. So will that continue? I think it will stay elevated. It won't continue at this level. There will certainly be net attrition because some of these accounts that were opened will close. They were smaller accounts. But they also brought in a lot of large accounts. So 
I think it will, I think the answer is Jim. It will slow, but they've reached. I would. I believe they've reached a new baseline above where they were previously because of all the engagement uh, around the markets. Um, how their P and L then plays out based on that and based on some of the mortgage and alts product and other stuff that we put in their system and some of the expenses that we were able to take out uh, and the funding benefits, you know, John, John can address that. But we'll, we'll certainly do a full update at year-end once we have an actual quarter of them sitting inside Morgan Stanley. John? Yeah, I, mean, I think uh, stay tuned for January. But we announced this deal in February. We told you it would be dilutive in year one, break-evenish in year two, and accretive in year three. And we still think that that's uh, the general framework, and we'll give you more information in January. We're just we just started on this path. We still have high confidence in the funding synergies, the $400 million of cost savings, uh, and the broad outline that we outlined in February. All right. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you. Our next question comes from Devin Ryan with JMP Securities. Your line is now open. Hey, uh, great. Good morning. Thanks for taking the question. Um, first one um, is uh, – just around the acquisitions, and, and I appreciate uh, that you guys have your hands full and the messages, um, you know, nothing big coming soon, or at least it sounds like. But if we take a step back, you've added many millions of new retail customers um, to Morgan Stanley's ecosystem over a short period of time, whether that be through Solium, E-Trade, or uh, Eaton Vance. And so if, if we think about products, um, are there any big products or services uh, that you're not touching yet at the firm level that could really make sense to plug into this broader retail consumer base, um, or is it really now just more about cross-selling existing Morgan Stanley? I think we've got, you know, we've got a very full plate right now. Um, and I think the biggest opportunity is probably uh, putting, uh, you know, mortgage product to high FICO score clients with good assets at E-Trade um, and putting uh, the banking product through the Morgan Stanley system, the digital banking uh, to go with our already, uh, you know, the two banks that we have. I think they're the two uh, two obvious ones, Devin, but I'm not seeing a specific product gap. And as always, we have to total open architecture. We'll take anybody's best product, including from all our competitors, because if that's what's right for the client, then that's the right thing to do. So I'm not seeing a product gap. Okay, terrific. Um, and then just a quick follow-up. I just want to make sure I'm... I'm following what's happening on the, the on the wealth side on the advisor headcount. So um, you know, this was the first quarter of net additions in over a year. This is the best addition quarter in uh, five years. And, and I heard the comment that uh, you know, Morgan Stanley is a destination and, and also benefiting from lower attrition. Um, but you know, is, is this quarter uh, kind of a one-off in, in that evolution, or is this something that we should maybe focus on as a shift occurring, um, and, and maybe the backlog um, could back that up. So maybe just curious kind of what the recruiting backlog looks like and if, if we should start to think about um, you know, headcount growth again on the financial advisor side. I mean, John may have a comment, but I, I, it's, it's hard to project, but the trend is definitely our friend. And if you look at the net recruiting numbers uh, for the last several quarters, I don't have them on hand, but I think the gap has been closing. We've now turned positive. Um, you know, it's a um, – we're at an interesting inflection point with that business. It's got great momentum. That's all I'll say. And the attrition, you know, part of it, Devin, is if people aren't leaving, then by definition you're, you're going to be growing. But, John, I, you've yeah, been I, close I, to Yeah, I it. think that's right. And the, and the pipeline uh, for recruiting certainly in the near term is, is, is strong. Um, 
We're attracting uh, attractive teams with good business uh, books of business. Uh, as James said, the number of advisors, if you go back, you know, the JV was dramatically higher. The attrition rates are quite low. Uh, and on a net basis, uh, we're seeing sort of flat uh, to slightly growing numbers. But more importantly, the assets and the revenues that the new advisors are bringing with them is going to be additive uh, in future years. So it's a really nice, it's a really nice position to be in right now. Yeah. Terrific. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from Gerard Cassidy with RBC Capital Markets. Your line is now open. Thank you. Good morning, James. Good morning, John. Hey. John, you touched on the prime brokerage results were strong in the quarter. Average balances, I think you said, increased as the markets um, you know, improved and you, more clients became re-levered up or engaged more. Can you share with us what's going on with winning new clients, particularly in other geographies outside of North America? Is that also driving these numbers? Um, so a couple things. Uh, we did have a nice uh, quarter in PB. You, you're right, uh, balances are up uh, from where they were. They're still uh, below the peak levels. We have seen the long, short hedge funds relever. Uh, quants still haven't uh, haven't relevered as much as the volatility in the equity market still remains uh, reasonably high. We continue to see a, a nice uh, pipeline of new launches uh, that adds to the growth dynamic. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, adds to the growth dy dynamic, and it's been pretty broad based. So, you know, we continue to believe uh, if the markets remain constructive, if volatility comes down, we'll continue to see growth uh, in the PB balances, which will drive revenue growth in the future. Very good. And then as a follow-up, I think, James, you talked about the strength in the institutional business. You've been very pleased with the numbers in 2018, 19, and year-to-date. You cited, you know, some of the competitors overseas aren't as strong. Is there any evidence yet that they're kind of getting back up on their feet and so be a more competitive environment as we look forward, or do you think they're still struggling? Well, I, I, I don't think I said that, Gerard, to be fair. I just said there might be opportunity depending what uh, some of the international competitors' strategies do, and, and clearly some of them have chosen over the last few years to shrink their balance sheets and, and go back to you know their core traditional banking businesses more. Um, it's hard for me to predict. I mean, these things wax and wane a little bit, so I, I don't want to comment on their strategy except to observe what's happened, and that's clearly provided opportunity for some of the U.S. banks, but that could change. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from Andrew Lin with Sockgen. Your line is now open. Hi, morning. Thanks for taking my questions. Um, so a question for you, James, on uh, M&A strategy, please. Uh, so you talked a few weeks ago about um, your disappointment uh, at MS being trading uh, like a bank with P ratio of 9 to 10 times. Uh, and I can see how uh, buying wealth management and asset management businesses might try and change investors' uh, perception of that. Uh, but I'd like to sort of like discuss it from a different angle. Uh, why isn't it a better strategy uh, to divest CIB? Uh, it's not obvious to me that CIB has uh, synergies with asset management and wealth management. Uh, you could have the CIB trading at nine to 10 times and then asset and wealth management trading at 20 times. Um, on, on top of that, you can have uh, the bulk of the excess capital uh, with asset and wealth management, and that could be returned freely to, to shareholders 
with that restriction from the Fed. Uh, so I was just wondering what your thoughts are on that as a, as a strategy to maximize shareholder value. Uh, that's not going to happen. That's my thought about that. Uh, we have an integrated model for reason. Uh, we have the ballots from wealth and asset management. We have the engine room. We generate, uh, originate product in our institutional business that um, helps provide uh, enormous uh, opportunities for our uh, clients across the other side of the house. Uh, there are so many synergies, Andrew, that's just not, that's not even uh, remotely close to where we think about this business. Thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, this concludes today's conference call. Thank you for participating. You may now disconnect.